In June 2019, the people of Hong Kong took to the streets to oppose a controversially proposed extradition bill. With an estimated 1 million people marching together on the 9th of June, the initial protests were passionate but peaceful. However, the situation soon turned violent. This week on Rightscast, we're joined by Sam Doubley, a member of the crisis response team at Amnesty International, as he explains how they responded, both remotely and on the ground, to mounting evidence of repression and violence inflicted upon protesters by the police. Hi everyone, it's always a great pleasure to be here in Colchester at the University of Essex. I've been here actually since Friday and spent the weekend with Dara training students who are volunteering this year with us, which was really amazing and really inspiring. But what I want to do is just talk you through what it's been like to be in Hong Kong recently. I was privileged enough with Dara and with Esme and Mitch, who are also here, to be in Hong Kong earlier this year in June. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then also, just before the main protest started, actually, we were there just as it began. Uh, and then in Hong Kong in September, where it was really remarkable to see just how much the students of Hong Kong have taken this protest really seriously. It's like, this is the end game for them. They're fighting pretty much for everything. They're fighting for their futures, they're fighting for their families' futures, and as 21, 22 year olds are fighting also for their children's futures. And I think we have to really respect and admire them for everything they've done so far, that they're out in the streets day after day after day, really standing up for, for their future against, you know, a hard group to fight against, a hard group to stand up against. But to go back to the start of all this, right? The people of Hong Kong are protesting for a reason, and the real catalyst behind this was the new law. Carrie Lam, the uh, chief executive of Hong Kong, was trying to put through the government, put through the assembly, uh, around a new extradition law or an amendment to Hong Kong's extradition law with uh, the rest of the world. And the proposed law, basically the idea is that it's allowing requests from any country, even if there's no treaty with that country, to request the extradition of criminal suspects, right? So that includes countries which Hong Kong doesn't have an extradition treaty with, including mainland China, Taiwan, and Macau, right? There is currently no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and China, and this law would allow that to happen. So quite obviously, you can see where the fear comes from, right? Uh, there's a real fear that this could lead to kind of political repression of, repression of political activists being deported to China to face what we probably know would be uh, unfair trial and possibly detention. I think very interestingly, at the at protest from the business community, there was an exemption introduced for tax evasion. So I think that's quite interesting to see that, that difference, right? The business community stood up and said, oh no, we don't like that. Like, okay, okay, if you evade tax, that's fine. But if you stand up for your rights, if you go to a protest, you are potentially open to being extradited from Hong Kong to mainland China. So it's quite obvious, like, you know, why people would, would be doing that. Um, and now that makes up you know, the repealing of the, of the extradition treaty, which in fairness has now been pulled, at least temporarily, comes now with, with a whole host of other demands from the protesters, right? And the protesters now are demanding five things, not one less, and including the repealing of the extradition law. That means now that they're asking the government to retract the characterization of the protest as riots. So the government has been labeling them as riots. There's also been questions around, you know, labeling, labeling protesters as terrorists, as terrorist suspects, right? Um, there's a demand for an independent uh, investigation into the use of force by police. 
Uh, and that's something that Amnesty is very firmly standing behind, right? That's kind of the focus of our campaign. It's like there needs to be an independent investigation into the conduct of the police during the protests, but in particular uh, since the, the 12th of June. There needs to be unconditional release of everyone arrested in the context of the protests. And they're also demanding political reform to ensure a genuine universal suffrage. So the ability to choose Hong Kong's leaders for themselves, the ability to... Yeah, so the ability to actually like have a vote about who the leaders of Hong Kong are, which is actually set, set out in Hong Kong's constitution or, or basic law. So, you know, we, while, while Amnesty actually welcomes the bill's withdrawal, we do very much firmly believe that there has to be a full, independent and impartial investigation into the use of the force by the Hong Kong police. And why, why do we do that? Why do we want that? I wanna, what I want to do today then, after that uh, introduction, is to kind of go through some of the elements. I said this would be a talk about how Amnesty responded to the protests. Um, but what actually were the protests? How has Amnesty actually responded? So a little bit kind of like how the sausage is made, if you like, you know, the challenges behind that, a little kind of insight into how Amnesty as an organization as the you know, biggest human rights uh, organization in the world actually responds to that, because that brings with it a whole host of other challenges, believe me. And then what, what are some of the hu human rights challenges? What do we actually see that happen in Hong Kong uh, that are particularly problematic? I think there's some of those that maybe, you know, we've got an idea of what they are, but I think there's a whole host of other issues that we need to discuss. And, and some new ones that, yeah, we've seen before, but actually becoming a little bit more insidious, like disinformation campaigns about the protests and things like that. Um, and then what kind of research and campaigning, what kind of outputs has, Am has Amnesty done around it? And then what, if anything, has been the impact of that? So. What do the protests look like? So the extradition bill itself was introduced in April of this year. Uh, and obviously, you know, with, with a lot of these things, when a new bill is introduced, it kind of flies a little bit under the radar and people aren't really aware that it's happening. You're like, what does that mean? You know, what's an extradition bill anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it kind of like was going through the Legislative Assembly in Hong Kong. Uh, and there were kind of ongoing protests, right? There were little, there were very low key. There were people who did get this local human rights defenders, local groups, and there were protests. Then what happened? We had the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen. So 30 years ago, June 1989, was the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, many of you are way too young to remember that, but um, uh, you will have probably have seen the pictures. You know, the very, very famous picture of a, of a man in Tiananmen Square standing in front of a tank and the tank stopping, right? And that obviously was a, a major piece of, of the history of mainland China, where it's basically now forgotten. There's a collective amnesia in mainland China about Tiananmen Square. You know, if you Google Tiananmen Square on the internet in China, nothing comes up, right? Except maybe, you know, well, Tiananmen Square itself exists. But if you Google Tiananmen Square in 1989, nothing will come up. There's a, basically a collective enforced amnesia about events. But in Hong Kong, it remains something rather large. And, and Dara, Mitch, Esme and I, we were having a big meeting in Hong Kong, uh, unaware that it was, this was going to happen, actually, personally. Uh, and we were invited down to these, these protests. We were, we were somewhere in the middle of all, all that. And it really was, personally, very awe-inspiring to actually be there and see people standing up for their rights. And as we were walking from the, from the MTR, the, the, the underground system in Hong Kong, towards the protests, all these people were like saying, you know, handing out these stickers. And I was like, you know, what's this all about? You know, ex extradition what? You know? And you got, you could feel it in the air that something was happening personally. I could feel that there was, there was some unrest coming, that people were, people were really feeling very, very strongly about this law that was coming in. And 
Just after we left Hong Kong, I left Hong Kong on actually the June the 8th, unfortunately, turns out. Uh, on June the 9th, there was, as always, this is debated, but Amnesty is saying around a million people marched peacefully in the streets of Hong Kong against the extradition bill. Right? And that was, a, that was a start, really, of the global, what we're seeing as, as a protest, really, I think, uh, started with these protests on June the 9th, which at this time was peaceful, right? and, but it was really kind of an awe-inspiring inspiring movement. Yet just three days later, this happened. Uh, there were more protests, this time around the Legislative Assembly, and this was beaten down phenomenally forcefully. I mean, I was, you know, I've, I've worked for Amnesty now for coming up to three and a half, four years, and I've seen a lot, but to see, you know, protests like this and violence like this in a city that you kind of consider with being a very peaceful, very calm place was really quite shocking, actually. Uh, so we had uh, events like this, for instance. So this was this on, 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 the, 9th, on, sorry, on the 12th of June uh, was something really quite remarkable. This is a place called Citic Tower, just by the Legislative Assembly complex in Hong Kong, where there were protesters outside and they were pinned up against this building. And yet the police started firing tear gas. And what, did, what happens, I don't know if any of you have been, uh, I hope not, unlucky enough to be tear gassed, but um, if you are ever tear gassed, your instinctive run is to run away as fast as you can because it's really horrible. It's happened to me once, I never want it to happen to me again. So tear gas was fired in front of them, and the only place that people could run was towards this building, towards the city tower building. So you have videos, like other videos of people smashing the doors to try and get in. Uh, it was a, really was a danger to life, a huge risk to, risk to life as a crush it was going towards the building. And then tear gas, of course, people were opening the doors to let people in so they weren't crushed to death. Tear gas was then coming into the building, which was equally distressing and deeply problematic. But the interesting thing about this was it was all on video. It was all on video. So my, our colleagues at Amnesty Hong Kong were in the streets. Our colleagues at Amnesty's regional office, which is also in Hong Kong for, for East Asia, were, were in the streets. But the interesting thing is, you know, you can only be certain places at once. And actually, we were seeing everything being live streamed on Facebook, basically. Live streamed on Twitter, live streamed on other social media platforms. Uh, so we started like looking at it from both angles. Like, what were the people on the street saying? And what could we also gather from the video evidence that was out there? So how does that work in real life? We try as hard as we can as Amnesty to collaborate as much as possible. In this situation, as I already mentioned, we had a lot of different actors involved. So Amnesty, the way it's set up is I work for Amnesty, what's called the International Secretariat, but Amnesty has also sections around the world. So there's an Amnesty UK, there's an Amnesty USA, there's an Amnesty Germany, and there's also a, an Amnesty Hong Kong office. Uh, traditionally, a very small office, a very understaffed office, although I think all our offices are understaffed, but a very understaffed office, but a very, very determined and very hardworking office. So they were, they were one of the parties also involved in this. At the same time, we have a regional office for East Asia is also based in Hong Kong. So the regional office for East Asia looks after Hong Kong, but it also looks after uh, China, Japan, Indonesia, anything that's kind of east of that kind of line, east of Thailand, I guess. Um, they look after all the kind of different, for the international secretariat, all the different issues around there. So that's a new move for Amnesty. It's happened over the last kind of three to four years, where traditionally people were based in London and then would fly you know, into, into different areas to kind of report on what's going on and then fly back you know, in a kind of very 
orientalist kind of way, if you like. But they actually, we've actually decided to uh, strategically kind of go closer to the ground, as they call it. And then involved in the mix was also my team. So my team was involved in two different ways. The Amnesty Crisis Response Team is a multidisciplinary team, kind of very scattered all over the world. We're based in the United States, in Switzerland. I'm based in Germany. Um, we're also also based in London. And the multidisciplinariness of the team means that, yes, we have people who go into the field, who go to war zones, who go to conflict zones, who go to ongoing conflict zones, which we would probably class Hong Kong at, at this stage, though like conflict. <laughs> And we also have uh, what I run, which is called the Digital Verification Core. Uh, and that comes under a sub-team called the Evidence Lab. And the Evidence Lab kind of looks at new ways or different ways of collecting evidence of potential human rights abuses to analyze and, and present as part of Amnesty's advocacy around human rights. So that would include looking at uh, satellite imagery, it would include looking at uh, other sensors, water sensors, anything like that. And it would also include, in this case, looking at videos and photos of, of protest. So we were lucky that, in a, in a way, we have uh, a group of students. So I run the Digital Verification Core I run. is based at six universities around the world. We're based at uh, Hong Kong University, Berkeley in California, Toronto, University of Essex, University of Cambridge, and the University of Pretoria in South Africa. So we'd just been in Hong Kong. and. Uh, we had a hub in Hong Kong, so all the students in Hong Kong, as soon as uh, June the 12th happened, were like, what can we do? And they really set, set to work gathering evidence, gathering information, which is where the collaboration and coordination challenges suddenly came up, right? We had these student volunteers collecting videos, we had our local uh, section, uh, as we call them, Hong Kong section on the ground, gathering, gathering evidence, we had our regional office also gathering evidence, and then the question was, how do we bring all of that together? And I'll show at the end some of how that works. But Amnesty's approach to this was, you know, how can we basically bring in all these different bodies, make sure that nobody treads on each other's toes, and put out as much strong work as, as possible. And I think what we've managed to achieve when it comes to Hong Kong as a human rights organization and for, to support the people of Hong Kong has really been quite inspiring, actually. The response on the ground has been, you know, really incredible. The funding of Amnesty International is mostly by, from its members uh, and, and Amnesty Hong Kong met its annual target in July of this year. And that's a, quite an unusual thing for Amnesty at the moment, it's quite an unusual thing for the human rights movement at the moment, but because we were so active and so present on the ground and so determined to display what was happening and so rapid in our responses, uh, there was a real feeling we felt w within the local population of Hong Kong that yeah, Amnesty is, is the organisation to support at this time. So what were some of those challenges? Um, well, collaboration is always hard, right? We, it sounds really easy, right? You're like, oh, you got one office here, one office there, and like, some people scattered all, the, all over the world, and we collaborated. Well, yeah, I mean, there's lots of frustrations around that. There's lots of uh, misunderstandings around that. There's lots of, definitely lots of cultural misunderstandings around that. Uh, lots of well-meaning and well-intentioned moves that are interpreted by the other person or the other organization as not being so. Um, so making that collaboration happen is always very hard. You know, it sounds easy. Why don't you just collaborate? Well, facilitating collaboration is a real, real job. And it's something actually I think we're getting better at, but it's always hard. But when you do it well, when you get everybody on the same page, it's really quite inspiring. 
so, you know, making collaboration happen is hard, but when it does work well, as I think it did in this project, in this incident, the reward is quite, is quite incredible, but it requires a lot of effort and a lot of energy. And sometimes you're thinking, oh, I can't just do this myself. And actually the, the product you get from collaborating is far superior. But to do that, then you need, you know, obvious coordination. Um, and the coordination then becomes a very tricky thing over, you know, sometimes over seven hours time difference, sometimes over 12 hours time difference. There was a time when I was working on this, on this project with colleagues and I was in Berkeley in California and I was working with, with colleagues in Hong Kong where I think it was about a 15 hour time difference, right? So you're trying to juggle all of these things all the time, but the coordination then becomes the really key thing. So moving on to what actually were the human rights challenges, and they were really varied in Hong Kong. There were, you know, a lot of different challenges, a lot of different incidents that we saw that I think are really worthy of comment. And kind of the obvious one from the start is police violence and, and the, the police's denial of violence. So this was an example, for instance, from uh, the 21st of September where you know, the violence had been going on for, for quite a while. You know, we're on to about the third month then. Uh, but this, this is a quite a striking one where uh, there was a video uh, moving around on the, on the internet where uh, we suddenly heard a denial from the police. You know, there's an obvious video and you see this guy in the middle of the video there in a yellow t-shirt. And the next day, the police commissioner comes on or the police spokesperson comes on and says, oh, it's just a yellow object. Nobody can actually see from the video what it is. The police officer was just kicking a yellow object. Right? And that was the kind of thing we were hearing time and time again, right? the denial of police violence, uh, where it was, it was obvious that it was there and it was happening time and time and time and time again. Unnecessary violence to restrain protesters or, to, or stop people protesting. And this was something we documented both through video but also going onto the ground. So two of my colleagues from the Crisis Response Team and Amnesty International went to Hong Kong for a week and were, were there during the protests and were interviewing people, really getting into, the, into hearing experiences of police violence, police violence in detention. And the important thing here is to document things like police violence. Yes, the videos are really useful, but it's really important to actually be on the ground and interviewing people, right? Uh, kind of triangulating your evidence so you're not just relying on videos where you could make a mistake. There's often you see a video and you don't know what happened before and you don't know what happened after, right? But you just see the actual mode of violence because somebody, for whatever reason, has edited it out or, you know, uh, edited it in a way that you can't see what happened before. So it's only also then by going into the field and actually discussing with people what's happened that you get a real idea of the police violence, which has been systematic and comprehensive. Uh, another major question or issue in Hong Kong has been the use of tear gas. Uh, and we've seen all sorts of ways that tear gas has been misused in Hong Kong. I was actually talking to somebody from um, a, a medical doctor at UC Berkeley in California who does a lot of work also with Physicians for Human Rights. And we were talking about the use of tear gas in Hong Kong and she, she asked me a question. She was like, could we do some research? Instead of always doing this research into when tear gas has been misused, how about we did some research into when tear gas has ever been used properly? 
And I think switching that around was really interesting because time and time again we see misuse, misuse of tear gas. And I've yet to see actually a use of tear gas where I would think, okay, that's kind of fair enough. Like there's a grave risk to life to somebody else and you're using the tear gas to, to make the other, other, other organization or other party flee. In this case, in Hong Kong, there was very little justification for any use of the tear gas, to be honest with you, especially in some of the ways it was used. So this is an example where uh, you can see tear gas canisters being fired from a tall building down onto protesters below. Uh, so you have the tear gas can canisters coming out of the windows here, being fired by the police, dropping down onto the protesters below. And then obviously the risk to life of being hit on the head by a tear gas canister uh, that velocity is pretty large, it's pretty high. Uh, but we've also seen lots of examples of you know, tear gas canisters being fired from a rifle at 45 degrees, for instance. Uh, and this is something you see time and time again, which is deeply problematic. Indeed, over this weekend and the last few days in Baghdad, in the protests of Baghdad, we've seen that again, and there's actually been loss of life. Thankfully in Hong Kong, not. But there's been loss of life, for instance, in Baghdad by tear gas canisters being fired, fired directly at people's heads from close range. And firing tear gas canisters directly at people or from above people onto them, you know, is obviously not something that should be done. We've also seen it used repeatedly. So this is another video where you see basically this line of police officers fire about 20 canisters of tear gas in quick succession. Absolutely no need, you know, absolute misuse of tear gas where, you know, probably one canister, if there was a real justification for using the tear gas, one canister was quite ample uh, to use it here. And often also they've been using the tear gas to target journalists. So people are just there to document events, not protesters. There's lots of videos of an empty road and a few journalists standing in like yellow, well, gilets jaunes, I guess, <laughs> yellow vests and identifying themselves as journalists. And the police come up and just fire tear gas and get rid of them. Obviously, you know, in a peaceful protest situation, in a situation where journalists should be perfectly allowed to document uh, what's going on, that is obviously something that we think is very deeply problematic. And then probably what I think is the worst thing is uh, the use of tear gas in confined spaces. Frequently tear gas has been fired into MTR stations, into uh, public transport underground stations, where obviously there's very little space for people to flee, very little space for people to get out of there and actually get relief from the tear gas. You know, it's Amnesty's position or kind of international standard position is that tear gas should never be fired directly at individuals or used in or around enclosed spaces. Yet this is something we've seen time and time again, in particular in MTR stations. But also when it's, used in, when it's been used in narrow streets and obviously the gas floats upwards into people's apartments where either um, older people or children live who then have you know, very little way to look after themselves, get out of there uh, and flee. So you know, you, the way that the police have been using tear gas in such excessive quantities and so indiscriminately without real reason has been you know, one of the most deeply problematic things that, that we've witnessed. But we also have a use of a lot of other less lethal weapons in Hong Kong. So there's been a lot of use of beanbag rounds. This is a woman who suffered a ruptured eye after being shot at uh, with what appeared to be a beanbag round uh, in one of the protests. And these are things that should never be fired at people's faces or heads, right? A beanbag round should be aimed at the body. It hurts like hell. And it should be used to actually stop somebody who's doing something dangerous, right? It's the kind of thing that hits you, stops you moving. 
there are cases where it can be used to stop self-harm or to stop harm of others, and that can be fine. But it hitting somebody in the head means it's being very badly targeted, very badly aimed, and that should not be done at all. Um, and this is also something that happened, which I found of particular interest, was the use of blue dye in water cannon. So the police announced some, some way through August, I think it was around the 1st of August, that, oh, we could actually put blue dye in our water cannon. Uh, and then on the 31st of August, they used it for the first time. People are saying also that it contains some other irritants, that it's not just water, that when it touches the skin, it actually burns and causes irritation. Uh, obviously, we haven't been able to do an analysis of that, but it's something that's been rumored. But most importantly, it means that people who are peacefully attending protesters are then marked. And we believe it's being used so that the police can arrest people afterwards, that they can find people and then indiscriminately arrest them that they have been near the protest, they've been in the protest because they have this blue dye on them, which obviously would deeply impact the right to, to peacefully protest and also the right to a, to a fair trial, actually. There have also been incidents where the police have allowed, let's say, protesters from the other side or of different opinion uh, to intervene against protesters and violently attack them. So this was an example from uh, the 21st of July, uh, one of the MTR stations where a group of, of men dressed in, in t white t-shirts attacked protesters with sticks and rods very violently, very aggressively, and then the police took a very long time to turn up to do anything about it, which was interesting considering the amount of police that are around in the streets of Hong Kong right now. Uh, so at least 45 people were, in, were, were, were injured in this attack on the UN Long MTR station, including a woman who was pregnant. And the, res the response, as I said, was very, very slow and basically amounted to a failure to intervene and protect people from a brutal attack. And then finally, unfortunately, more recently, we've had the use of live munitions. Uh, so this was on uh, the 1st of October, where a police officer discharged his handgun into the air. One dis uh, there were three incidents of live munition on the 1st of October. 1st of October was National Day in China. Uh, so there's a huge, um, huge protest in Hong Kong. So we had three incidents of live munition used. Now, you know, as a human rights investigator who looks at all sorts of incidents around the world, you're like, well, there's only three bullets fired. I think the fact that this happened at all in Hong Kong is deeply disturbing. And the fact that we should work as hard for it not to become a norm and not to become at all accessible is, is really, really important. You know, UN standards say that uh, weapons, live ammunition, should only ever be used when the police officer's life is actually at risk. And you know, I think while it was a violent altercation, whether or not the, the police officer's life truly was at risk, considering he was also carrying less, less lethal weapons, is something that's very debatable. And then we saw a lot of disinformation campaigns. I think the initial response from China and how that changed was really interesting. The initial response of China was just to ignore, right? pretend it wasn't even happening. There was nothing about the protests in the mainland Chinese media. There was nothing about the protests at all mentioned in any newspaper, any news bulletin or anything at all. But then that changed and it went towards more uh, a disinformation campaign or othering of protesters. Uh, so you know, if you look at this image, I don't think we need to look too long to know what that means. This was on, on social media. This was on a Facebook account, a China-linked Facebook account, uh, where a meme portraying the protesters as cockroaches started to, started, started to circulate. And there's been now rumors or allegations that the police officers in Hong Kong are now calling protesters cockroaches. 
and you know it doesn't take much to look back at the history to to get what the labeling of, of people who are different to us or other than us as cockroaches leads to um, not obviously saying that that's going to go there but it definitely leads to a chilling effect amongst protesters and ultimately does impact on their right to protest but then just as much as memes, there's also disinformation and targeting of protesters. So uh, the, the young protester I, show, I showed you the, who was hit by the beanbag round, uh, this is a, a rumour that went, out, went around on CCTV, which is a state, Chinese state television, which said that the woman had been injured not by a police's beanbag round, but had been uh, hit by a protester, and it was fired by a protester, and that she was pe being paid to take part in the protests. Right, so a lot of a lot of claims from the Chinese media is that the protesters are actually being paid to to go out into the streets, which you know our research and our evidence does suggest is definitely not the case. So what have we done about it at, at Amnesty? We've uh, done a lot of research and a lot of campaigning around this. So this was um, probably a report put out by Amnesty in what I think is world record time. As you can imagine, Amnesty is a large organization that it is, and all the procedures it has to go through isn't the fastest of organizations. But this was a, a report we put out after the June the 12th protests. It's called How Not to Police a Protest, because uh, I think it was, we thought it was a perfect example of if you're going to police a protest, you know, what should you not do? Well, here's a manual for you what not to do. Uh, it's quite a short report, but it goes quite nicely into what happened on June the 12th using the evidence collected uh, by the Digital Verification Court at Hong Kong University, so the students working with me and verified by me, uh, as well as uh, research done by Amnesty Hong Kong on the ground and the Amnesty Research Office done on the ground. So to be able to pull that together so quickly and put that out within, say, two to three weeks, it was really quite truly, truly remarkable. <laughs> but I think it had a massive impact that we did it that way and that we were, we were able to get it out there that, that quickly. And we had a lot of uh, media impact by that. We had... Uh, a lot of pushback from the Hong Kong police, which uh, obviously shows we're doing our job right if we're upsetting them. And most importantly, we had a lot of uh, acknowledgement and pickup from local people in Hong Kong. Um, then we worked on um, a timeline of events. I think uh, one of the things I'm proudest of is that we managed to bring out this timeline of events and show a pattern of repression of protests in Hong Kong. And that goes through all the events that happened in Hong Kong since, the, since around the 9th of June and pulls out the human rights issues with that. So if any of you are interested in our, our human rights or you know, studying on the MA in human rights here or interested in human rights in general, it's, it's rather than a you know, journalistic analysis of you know, this happened here, this happened here, very timeline. This actually is a timeline of events but also raises the human rights uh, and the legal questions that come out of each of those events. And then again, we went into the field um, and my colleagues, uh, Brian and Matt, went into the field and pulled out this investigation on the pattern of police force deployed and the reckless way and indiscriminate tactics that the police used. And we're always at Amnesty looking at different ways of, of representing information, right? So the timeline idea was, was one way. Um, we've done uh, other, other ways of trying to represent the information. Anything to get away from the you know 45-page PDF report that everyone says they're going to going to read and everyone in a talk takes a picture of, um, but actually find a way to actually represent this information in an engaging way that actually is rigorous uh, research, 
but actually in engaging information. So we often find maps can be phenomenally engaging uh, for the public. So this is an example where we went through and actually highlighted you know, different protests in different parts of Hong Kong to really get an idea of the systematic patterns of oppression of protests that were happening, uh, that have been happening and are still happening now. And what's the impact of that been? Well, one of the things that you know, did happen was that we have tear gas sales suspended from the UK. Uh, to Hong Kong, which you know we, we saw we thought was a definite win, um, in, you know hopefully also pushed a little bit by our research, not solely by our research, but I think uh, some of the, some of our research did contribute to that. Um, and this personally is my favourite piece of impact in terms of what Amnesty has done. This was the How Not to Police a Protest report. I said nobody reads a PDF, but in this case, people have read the PDF. Uh, people printed the PDF. Printed the PDF. Yes, that's true. Nobody reads a PDF. They printed out the PDF uh, and stuck it to the walls of police stations in Hong Kong. Right. So this is the actual report done by digital verification course students, uh, done by my colleagues, pulled together from all our work across the different places, and uh, from the from the regional office to the uh, to the local section to the crisis response team and actually pinned to the wall of a police station to say, you know, people know we're watching. So, you know, people have really seen the impact of, of actually going out there, doing rigorous human rights research into what's been going on in Hong Kong, that the effort by Amnesty to pull all of these different strands together and, and go through some challenging times doing that, but actually creating value by doing that, I think has been a very positive thing. And, and the work has been acknowledged very much by the, by the people of Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to this episode of RightsCast from the University of Essex Human Rights Centre. You can subscribe and find more of our episodes on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow the Human Rights Centre blog at hrcessex.wordpress.com. We'll be back soon with more regular episodes.